Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPOD. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. I am joined today virtually by Debag Das, who is a pre-doctoral fellow at the Center for International Security and Cooperation at Stanford. Debak, thanks for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's great. Uh, we look forward to hearing more about uh, your PhD. So let's just kick off right with that. What is your PhD about? Wonderful. Uh, so I work on nuclear weapons. Uh, in particular, I, my doctoral research of my dissertation examines how regional powers build their nuclear force structures. So, and I got there because most studies in the field of international relations, which deal with nuclear proliferation, explain why states build the bomb and how they do it. But I think that they miss how it is that states decide to drop the bomb, which is, you know, do you build nuclear submarines? Do you build aircraft? Do you build land-based missiles? Which ones do you build first? Can you build all of them or do you build a certain combination of that? So that's really um, what I'm trying to work on. And I focus on regional powers. Okay, and when you say regional powers, do you mean specific regions? So I mean states that are not superpowers. So states that are uh, middle powers like India, the United Kingdom, France, um, China would be a regional power aiming to become a superpower. So, so though that's the kind of, uh, those are the kind of states that I'm talking about. But in the nuclear world, we don't have a lot of cases, which is probably for the best, uh, but we do have about nine cases. And in general, uh, apart from the US and the Soviet Union, the other states are considered to be regional powers. And, and uh, sorry, this is kind of a, a lay person's question, but who decides? Uh, whether you're- Well, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I think it's just where the way that the literature has evolved over the years. Um, we have tended to have different metrics for measuring what a regional power is, what a middle power is, and what a small power is. And that generally is a combination of the economic power of a state, the industrial capacity of a state. So there is a, a metric that is calculated in the field of political science. Um, but when it comes to nuclear weapon states, because we have nine cases, we look at the superpower states and we say, well, these are superpower states. Who, who are the rest? Right. Um, right. Yeah. And nuclear power obviously adds a lot of military power to a particular state. So that kind of boosts up their overall, um, well, now I'm going, I shouldn't use jargon, but I was going to say CINC score, which is uh, an index which calculates military industrial capacity of a state. It's, we were about two minutes into this podcast and I've already learned so much that I never knew I even wanted to know, but I'm kind of intrigued now. Um, so you are, I believe, not too far from the end of your PhD. What plans do you have for afterwards? That's right. Um, well, I'm about a year away from the PhD. So after I finish my pre-doc over here at Stanford, I will use the rest of the year just finishing up writing my dissertation, and then uh, ideally start a postdoc, and uh, maybe here at Stanford at the center that I'm at right now. So fingers crossed on that. That would be wonderful. And um, it's so nice chatting with you. And there are so many people now that I've done podcasts with whom I've never actually met in real life. So if uh, you right. do 
come back to Stanford, then hopefully by then we, uh, we might be able to continue this conversation uh, IRL. What will your postdoctoral project be about? Ah, that's right. So um, I was about to start off telling you, well, well, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next year, um, which is kind of what the postdoctoral project will be about. The postdoctoral project would be to turn the dissertation into a book. Okay. So I have three chapters already in my uh, dissertation, which is India, the United Kingdom and France. Um, for the book, I would like to look at other regional powers like adding Pakistan is is definitely on the cards. And I've spoken to my advisors about that um, because Pakistan also has a very interesting uh, nuclear program. And one of the things that I'm focusing on in the chapters that I have right now is how it is that these states acquired their nuclear delivery vehicles from other states. So there's a fair bit of diplomacy and statecraft involved in the acquisition of certain kinds of military technologies. Um, and in this case, like just as India has done it uh, and gotten technology from the UK and France, and the UK has got it from the United States, and France has got it from the United States and the United Kingdom, Pakistan also has got some of its technologies from the United States, despite there being a nuclear non-proliferation uh, regime. So it's a very interesting case. I'd like to add a couple of cases like that uh, to my project and turn uh, the dissertation into a book. It's, uh, it sounds like there's a, a, a lot of great work to be done when you add in Pakistan. As a, as a person having grown up in Europe and, and having been uh, kind of grew up with the notion of NATO and what it meant for Europe to have nuclear weapons, I'm curious about uh, the UK-France situations, but uh, being in the Centre for South Asia, I guess I want to talk more about India and then uh, Pakistan. So. So tell me more about what's happening there. And, and I guess I think of India and Pakistan as nuclear powers uh, in relation to each other. Is, is, that, is that in any way correct or is, is that just what I've been led to believe? No, I think that's correct. Um, India and Pakistan are nuclear powers in relation to each other in some ways, but we've also got to talk about China a little bit. So the way that historically it evolves is, um, and of course there are, I should preface this by saying there are multiple layers of complexity involved, but the, the simplest narrative that we have, which is uh, historically accurate, is that in 1964, China gets a nuclear bomb. It conducts its first test. Uh, in 1974, India conducts its first, what is called a peaceful nuclear explosion, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is essentially a nuclear device. And Pakistan develops a nuclear power. And by the mid 80s, um, A.Q. Khan, uh, who is one of the leaders of the Pakistani nuclear program, says that Pakistan has nuclear weapons. They don't declare it officially in terms of doing a test. But then in 1998, India conducts its first official nuclear weapons test. And then Pakistan conducts its first nuclear weapons test. And so, uh, Pakistan's program is definitely in reaction to India's uh, nuclear program. India's nuclear program is a response to the Chinese and Pakistani nuclear programs. Um, so they're they're connected to each other, and definitely uh, one state plays off its anxieties with regard to the other, and that manifests itself in their nuclear programs. And then presumably, just being a nuclear power, whether that's regional or a superpower in and of itself is not enough. It becomes quantified in relation to the other power that you're most concerned about. That's right. Um, so India has about 150 nuclear weapons uh, as of last count, and Pakistan has about 160. 
Um, so they do try and keep up with each other when it comes to the number of nuclear warheads because you don't want to fall short. And w would the falling short, I mean, God, I'm so curious about all of this now. So how do they know, I guess is my first question. And I feel I have to apologize to the audience. I'm really just winging it here with my own personal <laughs> interest. So I hope this is interesting, uh, but there's so much I realize I don't understand. How do they know? So in some cases, um, if you look at all the nuclear powers that we've got, some in some cases, states like the United States um, and the Soviet Union actually have treaties where they announce that we've got these many um, nuclear weapons and we will, um, in, especially when it comes to arms control and reduction, they have to announce that they have these many nuclear weapons and these many warheads. In the case of India and Pakistan, we haven't actually had official statements on how many warheads each state has. The best accounting of this is actually by the Federation of American Scientists and um, Hans Christensen, who leads a project over there, uh, comes out with this nuclear notebook every year. Um, and this nuclear notebook, uh, which is uh, essentially an account of all the nuclear weapons that are there in the world. And so they do a calculation based off the ability of a state to produce fissile materials. And so they basically look at how much uranium or plutonium a state has and how many nuclear weapons they could possibly make from that. And so that's what the calculation is based off. It's not an official number. It's the best guess that we as scholars have of the number of nuclear weapons that uh, any of these states have. Wow, okay. Um you mentioned when we talked before that you um, spent quite a lot of time doing archival work. Can you, can you tell us more about that? Right. So this is an exciting part of my project, which is that I do historical archival work. So oh. I um, started off my archival work in India, um, where I was uh, for about six months. And I worked at the National Archives of India and the uh, Nehru Memorial Library over there, um, which have now begun declassifying a lot of important international relations related documents. So files from the prime minister's office, files from the Ministry of External Affairs, uh, files of personal papers of diplomats and uh, important bureaucrats. And so it's been very exciting to do a deep dive into some of these files and find out because, I mean, you're of course looking for certain kinds of information, but in the process you find other factoids and a lot of trivia. So um, yeah, I, in terms of trivia of the 60s and 70s uh, with regard to India, and then uh, I, I feel like I'm fairly well stocked. Um, and then of course, there's uh, I went on from India to go to the United Kingdom and to France. And uh, the UK has uh, is probably the place where I had the best archival experience because there's been a lot of declassification and Kew Gardens, uh, the National Archives there are great and um, they are less, uh, well, less is a strong term, but in comparison to India and to France, uh, the secrecy uh, laws uh, allow us to access a bit more in the United Kingdom case. So oftentimes uh, as scholars, we will find out more about certain cases like India, France, or Pakistan from foreign archives like the United States and the UK, which is also what I did. I went to a few archives in the US, 
um, uh, Library of Congress and to some of the presidential libraries as well to find out more about these regional powers because of secrecy laws. And France, of course, has some amount of secrecy. And so we know a lot of what's happening in France from, from the archives of other states. So it's overall, it's an exciting process because you're not only navigating trying to sift through all the information that you're getting in the archives. It's also questions of what is there and what isn't. And if what is there is relevant, why is it there in the first place? And what about it allowed it to be declassified and what else was not declassified in conjunction to it? So, so it's, it's an interesting process over, overall. I, I was thinking when you were talking about the, the amount of trivia that you gather that most of us who've done archival work, I, I would recognize that. In fact, that's where the best work can happen, uh, kind of what you find in the margins. Now, I, I don't know, is uh, doing this kind of um, archival archaeology, is, is that something you're trained for in political science or is that your history background that's shining through? Uh, that, that's actually a bit of both. Um, we do have in political science qualitative methods training, um, which deals with, amongst other things, uh, archival research as well. Okay. So a part of that is that uh, my initial training, I, uh, well, I grew up in India and I was, I did my bachelor's in Calcutta in uh, Presidency College and I did a history degree there. Uh, so my bachelor's was in history. So part of this is also that training um, equipping me to be able to navigate these archives. There you go. Okay, yes, it all comes together now. Yes. <laughs> so I, I'm very curious, you're in these archives, you're reading this declassified um, information, it must be exciting to know that somebody certain number of years earlier had not had access to that and here you are reading it. And I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I have this idea that they talk about budgets, that they talk about numbers, and that these are numbers that are mind-bogglingly large. Is that, is that a good assumption? I think that's a good assumption. We're mostly talking about um, millions and billions when it comes to at least the UK and France and the US um, of dollars and pounds. So those are, those are huge numbers, yes. And so how do I imagine that? I mean, we hear that, right? I mean, especially now when there's so much hardship, we, hear, we talk about the defense budget, but for me, it's always, um, well, it's way more numbers than I can process for starters, but it feels a little bit abstract. Like I know that I would like that to be different, but I couldn't really say very much more about that. I, I imagine when you're in the archive, it, it becomes very tangible. So I wonder if there's a kind of an emotional reaction that you have when you sit there and you're looking at these documents and, and they talk of these enormous numbers spent, especially in the past, knowing that, that perhaps it wasn't necessary because nothing happened. I don't know, how do you deal with that? Right. Um... I mean, it is it is somewhat um, difficult to square. Um, so I, as you were talking, I was thinking of say the UK and you know early 80s when it's sort of coming out of a fair amount of economic hardship, but at the same time still talking about modernizing its um, nuclear arsenal and buying the Trident missiles mm -hmm. uh, from the uh, from the United States, and that's again millions of dollars. And there's a question of okay, what submarines are we going to build to carry these missiles, and whether we should have five submarines or six submarines, and all of these are extremely extremely cost. Um, costly endeavors. And there is an understanding that 
you know, this is this is for the safety of the state and uh, a state state survival is the ultimate goal. So um, in some ways, the money is well spent because the state is safe. But then there's, of course, like you said, there's there's a question of, well, what does that actually mean for individuals within the state? And so in, in, in some, there's part of IR literature which looks at human security, which talks about individuals being able to have three square meals a day, um, have be having access to healthcare as being security. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you compare those two things, which is hard security versus what you would call soft security, and that's not, I mean, I'm not a fan of those terms, but that's just how we've started referring to them in the field of security studies. Um, and so the payoff between hard security and soft security is really one that is debatable, and we have very strong uh, debates about it on both sides. I would love to uh, learn more about that. So, okay, let me just get this right. A hard versus soft, with the hard security being the national security and the soft security being human that's right. Security. I guess I'm thinking that, like, we know that we're supposed to think of um, hard and national as better than, like, there's a, there's a hierarchy there. But again, I would immediately turn that on its head, like, who says? Um, right. And softness is no doubt a <laughs> highly underrated quality in, in, in many, but the, the same way we talk uh, uh, in universities about hard and soft money. Right. You know, one step right. better than the other, right? And and perhaps it's time to really start addressing these um, these ideas. So, so people that work around nuclear weapons who do the kind of work that you do, you're saying even within those realms of the academy, there's kind of debates as to whether um, the national or the human security should be prioritized or how does that interface with actual politics? So that debate is definitely there. And I mean, just sitting in today's world where, you know, we're all at home because there is a a pandemic, which is a, a health security concern, which, you know, traditionally fall under soft security concern. But here we are all at home because of the soft security concern that we haven't really spent enough money on in some ways. So um, so in some ways, our policy makers in general, and this is across the board, this isn't specific to one particular country, have all prioritized hard security. We've prioritized building bigger militaries, uh, building more nuclear weapons and spending more money there than on things like uh, social security and uh, healthcare. So that's that's how the policymakers have fallen. And uh, some of it is driven, of course, by considerations of where does the biggest insecurity for your nation lie? Does it lie at your borders? And it's easy to think that for India that, well, yes, China and Pakistan uh, need to be uh, uh, stopped at the borders before we can actually even concentrate on uh, on focusing on uh, softer social uh, issues. And likewise for, for other countries as well, um, secure borders first and your sovereignty before you can do anything else is generally the priority that policymakers look at. Right. Um, now, the wisdom of that, of course, uh, is, is up for debate, like I said. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I, I grew up with the notion that, um, you know, nobody was ever, the, the idea is that nobody's ever going to use nuclear weapons. You just have to have them because you need to have as many as the other person that you, you're scared of. I think that's how we were kind of um, uh, <laughs> taught to think about it is perhaps uh, the most benign phrase I can, uh, I can describe that process. Right. Um, but we also know from recent events that everything we thought was going to be a certain way was actually, is actually not true. So do these, do these ideas hold? Are they being severely questioned right now in terms of who has the power to actually trigger that stuff? Well, I think there is, we've got new scholarship now uh, talking about what are the determinants of policymaking, right? Mm -hmm. And to some extent, we can say, well, there are certain things that are objective considerations for a state, but then, you know, things like security fall under those sort of categories. But then is it what the policymakers think are important or is it what public opinion uh, thinks is important? So the question is, where does the public fit in to all of this? Um, if you ask the layperson on the street, would they say, well, yes, you should build more bombs or you should acquire more aircraft, or would they say, no, please build a hospital or please build a school, right? Yeah. And the answer to that question may not be intuitive also. The, the average person on the street may actually just say, no, I, I feel secure if, if we have another squadron of uh, fighter aircraft at our borders. Correct. So... Um, so really, uh, it's it's one of those things that that we've not been able to come to a we haven't been able to pinpoint that they, this is what the actual source of uh, national security decision making is and should be because I think it really depends on the form of government that you are in and the ruling dispensation and what they value and what the public that votes them in values. Correct. Okay. Yes. Um, I just want to acknowledge that we are uh, in the 75th anniversary commemoration of the um, Hiroshima bombing. And so this is a timely time. I mean, I think it's always timely to talk about these things, but it's, it gives it an extra little bit of poignancy, I guess. We also recently had this uh, horrible disaster in Beirut and um, I, I think I haven't finished reading all the analyses, but, but I think what I got so far is that at least we know that having large amounts of chemicals sitting around is a really, really bad idea. Uh, and so I imagine that that uh, conversation will now also move into having nuclear weapons sitting around and, and how smart that is in terms of just the danger of something going wrong. Is that, is that true? Do you want to say more about that? Yes, I think that's definitely true. Um, and this is a debate that we've had in the nuclear um, security and especially people uh, like me who study nuclear weapons. We've had this debate in the field for a while on, on the safety and security of having large nuclear weapons stockpiles um, and the possibility of nuclear accidents. So. Uh, Professor Scott Sagan, who's at the Center for International Security and Cooperation, CSAC at Stanford, has a book on the limits of safety. And, uh, you know, the argument there is uh, you should probably not be building more uh, nuclear weapons because we don't know how safe these things are. Um, and there's 
Uh, recently, uh, last week, there was an article in the Washington Post by two scholars, Alex Verestein and Benoit Pelopidas, and they talk about the role of luck. And the argument there essentially is that we've been very lucky that we haven't actually had a nuclear weapon uh, uh, being used uh, since uh, 1945, uh, since Nagasaki. And in some ways, that's true. And uh, but, you know, we have had nuclear weapons drop. And the, the example that I go to is something that uh, the journalist Eric Slosher has written about, which is in 1961, the U.S. dropped a nuclear bomb on North Carolina, um, where uh, two atomic bombs fell. Sorry. Little known fact, what happened? Yeah, so this is a little known fact. So on uh, January 24th, 1961, uh, there were these two B-52 bombers uh, which uh, were flying and a bomber uh, broke apart in a flight. And this is near a place called Goldsboro in North Carolina and two bombs fell. Mm -hmm. and, um, and at least one of them, there was an arming sequence which got initiated. And only there was one switch which did not get initiated. So one switch remained in the safe position. And this is a $5 switch which remained in a safe position, which prevented the bomb from exploding. And mind you, if this bomb exploded, it would have been about 250 times more destructive than the one that fell on Hiroshima. Okay. So that now, but that I don't have words. I don't. I don't know what what sound to make to express what I'm feeling right now. Two hundred and fifty times more powerful. That's right. Yep. What was it doing flying over North Carolina? So it was a time the 1960s um, and a few decades after that as well. Uh, there was, uh, if you remember having watched, um, actually, I assume everybody's watched this movie, but you may not necessarily have, but Dr. Strangelove. Oh, no, I um, uh, uh, sorry, just, this is one of the pitfalls of being in the nuclear business is that you just assume that you know the nuclear classics have been watched by everyone. So I started with, if you recall, but I should rephrase that. With, there's a movie, Dr. Strangelove, which is uh, kind of uh, one of those movies that everybody watches in the nuclear business. And uh, you have there's these fighter bombers, which they deal with over there. And uh, so at, in the 60s and 70s, you had these bombers, which were constantly patrolling the air. Um, so the idea was that a whole bunch of nuclear weapons were constantly in the air from the United States' side, as well as from the Soviet side. Um, so if there was a strike by, say, the Soviet Union on the United States' missile bases, the land-based missile silos, you would still have nuclear weapons in the air, which could then be sent towards uh, the Soviet Union in response. So they were just kind of hanging around in, in case they were needed? Uh, literally, yes, they were hanging about in the air. Um, just flying about in case they were needed. I once asked an Uber driver, like, what you do when you're waiting for, this is obviously in the before days, uh, and, and um, when we still took, uh, you know, like public transport. Um, right. And uh, I asked the Uber driver and, and he said, you know, I, I, I sit, you know, I don't waste time and gas just driving around waiting for, uh, you know, the app to bring up the next person. And that seemed very sensible, but clearly not something that applies or applied to that thinking around nuclear weapons. <laughs> yes. Um, no, they, they, I mean, depends. There are different ways of um, 
managing your uh, stockpile. Uh, but uh, in, during the Cold War, there was this sense of an imminent uh, threat. And uh, because of that, they just had these, uh, these uh, bombs uh, flying about uh, just in case they needed to be used. Uh, that said, there was a time uh, when I forget which year this was, but I believe the United States has in the past actually misplaced some nuclear um, weapons as well because an aircraft took off with the weapons and they weren't supposed to. And, you know, while doing accounting later on, an Air Force officer realizes, oh, no, where are these, uh, where are these uh, bombs? And they realize, oh, well, it's on this particular plane. So uh, we've had situations like that as well. So not terribly great to have large amounts of nuclear weapons lying about. You can have a sense of control. You can think that, well, we've got these mechanisms in place and so nothing can go wrong. But in fact, that nothing has gone wrong is sheer luck in some ways. It's, I'm not sure if this is where I want to end, but this is where we are going to end. So we thank luck more than any uh, great planning or strategizing that the world still looks the way it does, um, in spite of many terrible things having happened, but it looks like some things were also averted and could have happened, but didn't. Um, this has been just enlightening. Thank you so much for spending half an hour with us and uh, talking all about all these different things that we didn't know we wanted to know, but now I'm actually quite keen on uh, reading up a few more things. Thank you, Debak, and, and, and good luck with, um, with all that is ahead of you in these very challenging times. Thank you very much for having me, Lalita, and uh, I hope that uh, we can actually meet uh, IRL once, once this is all over, and I'm happy to chat more about these subjects with you. Thank you so much. Uh, to our listeners, thank you for joining us again. All information about the Centre for South Asia uh, is at southasia.stanford.edu, and we will see you again soon.